Hello and welcome to the Vulture TV podcast. I'm your host this week, Matt Zoller-Seitz. On this week's show, we will be talking with Mark Harris about his new Netflix documentary series, Five Came Back. Welcome, Mark. Thanks for having me. Before we jump into this conversation about Five Came Back, it is time for this week's prompt. And my question to my guest, Mark, what is your favorite book-to-television show adaptation? It doesn't have to be a regular show. It could be a miniseries or a movie. And it doesn't have to be, you know, documentary. Just anything that was once a book that became something on television. Wow. Okay. Um, uh, that, that actually feels like a slightly... Oh, I know one. Okay, I'll give you one. I don't know if this is my favorite, but uh, it's way up there. Um, David Simon's Homicide Life on the Street. Um, I remember reading that book, uh, uh, which I think is called Homicide a Year on the Killing Streets, uh, yes. about Baltimore crime. And, and I, I thought, oh, this is a fantastic piece of reporting, and I can't imagine how... I wasn't even thinking about a TV series. I thought I can't imagine how anyone could make a movie out of this, but I'm so glad to read it. And then um, uh, Homicide, the the first season in particular, as I recall, adapts some very specific things from the book. And and then you know I think like any TV series, it runs off and becomes its own thing. But um, I thought that was that was a, a book to TV adaptation that was done with a, a lot of integrity and a lot of creativity. Hmm. I, you know, I you mentioned David Simon. I also am very partial to uh, the corner, which was uh, almost a, a sort of a run up to the wire. I think it was done right after Homicide in about two thousand. Oh yeah, it's fantastic. Uh, was the corner a book? I can't even remember. It was. It was based on his reporting with uh, um, his uh, collaborator. Oh well, yeah, that's that's like an all time great miniseries. I think. Yeah, that's a good one. I think my personal pick for a uh, book to uh, television program would be Roots. The original roots, right? And I know that there were later some 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 issues with you know did he plagiarize certain things? Did he make things up? But I just I just think if you just treat it as a book and if you sort of remove the distinction of whether it's nonfiction, fiction, or something in between, that's just an amazing adaptation that is true to the spirit of the book, but also is its own thing. Right, and a, and a gigantic cultural phenomenon of its own as well. Absolutely. Listeners, if you have any suggestions for future prompts, you can email them to tvquestions at vulture.com. That's tvquestions at vulture.com. We'll be right back. New York Magazine and Vulture contributor Mark Harris got a lot of attention for his 2008 book, Pictures at a Revolution, Five Movies and the Birth of the New Hollywood. That book used the films vying for the 1967 Best Picture Oscar, The Graduate, Bonnie and Clyde, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, Dr. Doolittle, and In the Heat of the Night as a lens into the changing world of Vietnam-era Hollywood filmmaking. Next, Harris turned his attention to an earlier era in which Washington enlisted Hollywood storytellers in the World War II effort, hiring them to make motivational films and documentaries and to record history through artists' eyes. In his book, Five Came Back, A Story of Hollywood and the Second World War, Harris examined the wartime work of five directors, Frank Capra, John Ford, John Huston, George Stevens, and William Wyler, and revealed how the men shaped the war's messages and vice versa. The result was a detailed chronicle of artistic and social change during a crucial period of American history, as well as a big tapestry ensemble drama about five talented, complicated men making their way in the world. 
The book is now a documentary that is debuting on Netflix March 31st with narration by Meryl Streeps and interviews with Steven Spielberg, Francis Coppola, Guillermo del Toro, Paul Greengrass, and Lawrence Kasdan. Mark, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, Matt. So uh, let's put a frame around this for people who are not familiar with the subject of 5K and back. What is the story that you told in your book and that is being retold in the documentary series? The story is about five directors who were well-established in Hollywood, John Huston, George Stevens, John Ford, William Wyler, and Frank Capra, who suspended their careers to enter the military at the beginning of World War II and serve as documentarians and propagandists uh, during the war. They, they, they went around the world filming the war uh, for the American public, and uh, my book is about their experiences in that war and how it changed them as directors and as men. This is a this is a formidable group of filmmakers and a very different group of filmmakers. This is a you've got John Huston who's almost kind of a Hemingway sort of character right. and then Frank Capra who, you know, his name last name became an adjective practically. Uh Mr. Optimistic, corn-fed, believe in America, apple pie, we can do it. And uh, and then William Wyler was more of a journeyman, I guess. I mean, how would you describe him? Well, you know, I think the interesting thing about Capra and Weiler is that they're both immigrants. Uh, you know, of of the five, they are the two immigrants. Uh, Weiler came when he was a teenager. Capra came when he was a, a toddler. Um, but, uh, you know, I think they had really different experiences. Uh, Capra's experience of being an American was, you know, to look for opportunities to express uh, this deep, deep patriotism that he felt, uh, you know, a constant assertion uh, that he was not a foreigner, that he was not an outsider, that his American identity was real. For Weiler, uh, who was the only Jewish director of the five, his his identity as a European was also very real to him. I mean, he was a patriotic American, but he had friends and family trapped in Europe who he was desperately trying to get out as as war approached in Europe. And, and uh, you know, he was less interested in, in flag-waving than in, in beating a menace that he understood the danger of really in a firsthand way. That's interesting because there's a point uh, where Weiler was uh, asked to make a documentary about the plight of black soldiers in the South, and he, he, uh, he had problems with that, didn't he? He with did. The- he, he accepted the assignment, and then he and the uh, African-American playwright, Carlton Moss, who was assigned to write the movie, went on a tour of uh, military bases throughout the South and West, and and Weiler was appalled, first of all, at the way Moss was treated, that, you know, they couldn't stay in the same hotels or use the same bathrooms. And second, the more he looked at it, by he was appalled by the way uh, black soldiers were treated by the Army itself. And, and by the time Weiler got to Washington, uh, I mean, he was a man of very strong conscience and, uh, conscience, and he just said to Capra, I can't make this movie, I can't participate in in something that uh you know makes it look like if if black men going to the army they're going to be treated well what about uh what about george stevens and john ford what was their what was their motivation for getting involved in this were they also just super patriots or well ford was the oldest of the five directors he already had teenage children he was in his late 40s by the time he went into the war and he was also the only one of the five who technically had been old enough to go into the 
First World War, uh, which he did not do. He was just starting out uh, in Hollywood, and, and he elected to stay. And I, I think that always haunted him to a degree. He, he felt that uh, war would be an opportunity for him to test his personal courage and and in many ways, that is what the Second World War was for him, uh, mm-hmm. you know, a test of his own courage and an education for him in the courage of others. He was also, he really loved the sea. He had a boat. He loved to go out. He's the only one of the five men who joined the Navy rather than the Army. Right. He's also the only one who joined up before Pearl Harbor. He really saw the threat coming quickly. Uh, George Stevens, um, you know, you, you referred to Capra's sort of, corn-fed all-american stevens actually was that i mean he is a native californian son of californians uh, lived a really kind of happy-go-lucky life as a kid uh came up in hollywood making uh really light-hearted movies you know fred astaire and ginger rogers laurel and hardy shorts Catherine yeah. hepburn comedies um and unlike Ford, uh, Stevens was not persuaded uh, early on that that the war was even something uh, America needed to be involved in. By his own account, he came to it late and came to an understanding late and, and interestingly, ended up going deeper into the war and, and seeing more horror and suffering in the war than any of the five did. Yeah, and, and uh, about, um, you were talking, the way you were talking about... Uh... Ford as seeing the war as an opportunity to test his mettle. Uh, John Houston had a touch of that too, didn't he? He was he he always had that kind of like he man. He he went to Africa to hunt elephants, and he was really just Mister. He was like John Milius, you know, in a, in a later generation, right? Right. I mean, Houston was a, was you know a, a swaggering. Uh, I think in Hollywood he was sort of seen as as a rich kid. He was the son of Hollywood royalty. He would drink too much. He would get into trouble. He was seen as reckless. He actually got in a couple of car accidents and and sort of uh, camped out in uh Europe for a while to to kind of reboot his life um and came back to Hollywood before the war uh and started to make uh his name under Weiler's tutelage as a screenwriter first, and then with Maltese Falcon as a breakthrough director. But yeah, he, I mean, even more than testing his courage, I think uh, Houston thought the war was just going to be one big adventure. Huh. I think he really thought, probably of the five, he was the one who most thought that it was going to be fun. And one thing that really interested me in telling these stories is each of the five went into the war for a different reason, uh, had his own uh, reasons for going into the war, and then the war surprised each of the five in a different way by not being quite what, what he thought it was going to be. The uh, the World War II has, uh, I just, just about passed out of living memory now. I mean, there's a few people that's left who, who experience it firsthand. And I remember when almost 20 years ago, it's kind of shocking to think that that's how long it was, when Steven Spielberg, who was in the documentary fight, came back, uh, directed Saving Private Ryan, and, and then later he and Tom Hanks would do uh, their two miniseries uh, for HBO, Band of Brothers and the Pacific. Um, he he. Some of the urgency w- on his part was because the, these World War II veterans were not getting any younger, and and a lot of them had already started to die off. And he wanted to make this grand sort of definitive statement about the what the war meant, while there were still people who could watch the movie who had gone through it. Now we're twenty year, almost twenty years on. Right. Um, 
And do you how did you feel about revisiting this period of history? Was it something that, you know, you had some connection to it because your you know, your family obviously went through it and they passed some stories on to you, but people in their 20s, they're they're a couple more generations removed from you and me. Right. I mean, my father uh who died when I was young went into the war when he was 17 and he would be 92 now if he were alive. So so that generation really is largely either gone or or very very old and and you know as as remote as World War II was to me uh a sort of sheltered happy kid growing up in the 70s um uh it's it's generations more remote uh you know to people who were were you know toddlers when saving private ryan came out right so so i'm very conscious of uh that that we're we're telling a story in this um that's a story of history but it's also a story of film history um where we're trying to kind of stretch a narrative line over uh 75 years i mean one one reason i was really happy that that steven spielberg and and four other directors kind of serve as our on-camera guides in the documentary is that it you i hope kind of get a sense of film history as one long flowing river i mean you know steven spielberg got to meet william wyler um you know uh uh Weiler's career was ending just as Spielberg's was beginning so i like the feeling that there's some historical continuity there how did that complicate your research because you had uh, fewer this was done the book was done what in the last 5 6 7 years yeah i i researched it from i guess 2009 to 2012 and at that point uh your opportunities to interview people who personally went through all this stuff were were severely limited you were you were going mainly for archives weren't you i made a decision actually that i wouldn't interview anyone for this book i had interviewed tons of people for my first one, uh, which was set in the late 60s um, and about the movie business. And a lot of those people were already quite old. For for a World War II book, I mean, in this case, it was just the case that there was nobody alive who had been an adult and in a meaningful role during the period I was writing about. So I knew I would have to rely entirely on research on personal archives of the directors and on government and military archives. Mm-hmm. And and what did that entail? Like what just describe the physical process of, of tracking that information down. It's not like you can just do a Google search for some of this stuff. No, some of it you can. Um, and obviously you can watch the movies and, and you know, I, I was I was really happy to find that all of the war documentaries I was writing about still existed. Um, but uh, for the directors... I was fortunate in that all five of them had had their papers archived uh, in different places, some uh, in uh, the Academy Library or at USC or UCLA. Um, Ford's papers were in Bloomington, Indiana. Uh, Capra's are at Wesleyan University in Connecticut. So, so you know, there was, there was a lot of traveling and, and digging through boxes in libraries and, and hoping that, you know, in the next box or the next file will be the the magic thing that you're looking for and then that kind of gets you 50% of the way and then i i got the other 50% of the way by approaching it in the other direction going to the national archives and the library of congress and seeing what was archived from a 
uh, about them from a military perspective. Mm, okay, so you're pulling out their records. Right, their records and the records of the, the War Department and the communication bureaus of the War Department and the, you know, the, the filmmaker initiative and, and, you know, just to, to find out as much as I could possibly find out uh, about them through them, but also through the, the people who recruited them. What kind of information could you find by going through their official files as opposed to their personal papers? Well, how did that help you in constructing the story? Well, one huge thing was that uh, at the National Archives in College Park, Maryland, which is just an amazing place, um, it's full of people who are like trying to find their relatives from the Civil War and stuff <laughs> like that. Um, there's a lot of family tree research there. But one thing I found in the National Archives uh, were all of the outtakes from San Pietro, all of the footage that... Oh, the um, Battle of San Pietro, the, uh, uh, the Houston uh, documentary. Right, um, which, which uh, was, was hailed as this landmark of uh, realistic battlefield footage, but in fact was all staged after the actual Battle of San Pietro was completed. Um, he got see, there like he got there late or something. He or? Got, he, he, he got there late, um, and and uh, <laughs> and he's like, "Hey, can you bring that tank back over where it was an hour ago?" Right, and uh, you know, I'll say that that was done with like the enthusiastic endorsement of his army superiors. It was it was um, not something that Houston was trying to put over on the military. It was you know the the army said, "Stage it, do it, um, huh. you know, show what a battle is like," and even put out this press release. This completely fictional press release when the movie came out saying Houston and his men were so brave that they actually advanced to the front before the soldiers advanced to the front so that they could turn their cameras around and show the soldiers advancing. I mean, this should have raised some suspicions. Uh, but the interesting thing about that is that even though it is this gigantic act of fakery, it, Houston genuinely was after realism. He had seen some horrible things in the war, and he wanted to convey um, as vividly as he could uh, uh, what, what it looked like to, to, to be under fire or to be firing on a, an occupied town. And so he, he kind of invented a, a visual vocabulary of things like the shaky camera and, and you know, accidentally catching a soldier's eye with the camera. Um, you know, he, uh, he, he invented, in some ways, what war footage looks like for us. And, and, and the movie really, you know, Coppola says in the documentary, it doesn't really matter to me that it was faked. It, it, was, it was conveying some truth about, about war. Hmm. And, and, and Spielberg, I think, in the documentary disagrees. He says he's disappointed uh, to learn that it was fake. Anyway, at the National Archives, you can see all the little, literal outtakes when, you know, soldiers are sort of... They, there's one scene where they go into a farmhouse and they just kick a bunch of grenades aside, um, you know, as if there's no possibility that these would explode, because there's no possibility that they would explode. Right. And... And so you can, uh, I was able to see from the outtakes that Houston kind of systematically rejected anything that looked stagey or awkward. Hmm. Hmm. So that was a huge help. And, and also the other thing that I was really able to discover in the archives is just uh, that even though these guys were recruited to do this special work, there's a great deal of institutional skepticism uh, from uh, military people and from some people in the government about what 
place they had there. You know, the, the, it was not the case that they were all welcomed with open arms. Wow. Well, I I, I was uh, curious to find out um, how this process, how this how this process of writing this book informed at all uh, working on the documentary. I mean, they're two, obviously, they're two different mediums. They're very, very different in the way they deliver information. Yes. Um, and I knew going in that I didn't want to be the sort of precious writer from New York who was like, no, you have to preserve all 490 pages of everything I said, because obviously, you know, there would not be much of a point in making a documentary that was an exact duplication of the, of the book. The, the thing I really wanted from the beginning, and the thing that everyone involved also wanted from the beginning to preserve from the book was the structure, in, in that we didn't want to carve this into five separate stories of five different directors. We, I wanted it to be one ongoing narrative that they were all a part of. Right. Um, and and once, once everybody said that they were on board with that, uh, then it became you know, a kind of complicated question of how, what do you put in? What do you leave out? What, what's a really interesting detail that someone can find out if they want to read the book? And what's a really interesting detail that belongs in the movie? Um, and the, the first, and on top of that, it's like, it's not as if you can write a conventional script for something like this, because when I was doing the first draft, we didn't know yet what clips we were going to be able to license, and we also didn't know that we were going to have these interviews yet. We knew we wanted some interview component, but, but when I started writing, we hadn't settled on using five contemporary directors yet. It's also somewhat complicated, I would think, by the fact that so much of your book is about stuff that nobody has pictures of. Yes. So how do you deal with that? I mean, you know, you, I see you've got, a, you know, you've got kind of a compromise here, but at some point did you just have to make the decision, well, if we can't, if we can't have a picture to go with something, we're just going to have people talk about it? Um, yeah, I mean, it wasn't we, – we didn't happily get to a place where there was some huge plot component that had to fall out completely um, because we didn't have images to go with it. What what got left out was, you know, that behind every one of these war documentaries were a fantastic number of kind of small internecine squabbles and struggles and frustrations and people trying to thwart them. And, you know, in the book, you get a sense, I think, pretty vividly of what an uphill battle it was to get anything made uh, under these circumstances. And in the movie... We we con uh, you know we concentrate much more on the experiences of the five guys and what they ended up making, and we do nod to some of the struggles uh, in certain cases, uh, things like the Negro Soldier, um, or, or Let There Be Light getting suppressed. Um, but uh, you know, instead of trying to view it as a disadvantage that you can't in a documentary get into the micro detail that you can get into in a book. I think we all wanted to seize the huge advantage, which is that as careful as I was to try to describe the Battle of Midway or the Memphis Bell or report from the Aleutians in the book, you know, in a movie you can show them. And, and like, just to be able to, like, you know, give you a piece of footage from John Ford's or William Wyler's wartime work 
means that there's a lot I don't have to say, you right, know. Right. What were the rights issues with this? I mean, is it all owned by the Defense Department, or did you have to go through through other parties? The all of the war documentaries are public domain, and uh, that's one reason I thought this could be a documentary because so many uh, documentaries about film history crash on the rocks of uh, that the clips are just unobtainably expensive. Right, and and I knew that we would have to pay for. Um, the Hollywood stuff, uh, you know, before the war and after the war that these guys did, and even a little bit during the war. But, but I also knew that the war documentaries were all in pretty decent condition and obtainable, uh, not for, you know, some exorbitant fee because they, they were, they were in the public domain. And so I thought there, there's an opportunity here. I was also really surprised when the book came out um, at the number of people who read the book and said to me that they just assumed that these, all these war documentaries were lost or unseeable. And in fact, they're very accessible and, and Netflix is putting them all up um, on their service. So, so I thought, oh, you know, the people don't know that these movies actually still exist the way they knew on my first book, obviously, that Bonnie and Clyde and The Graduate exist, there's an opportunity here to, to, to really bring these directors back to life for them. That's really interesting to me because uh, this is something that's only made possible by the advent of streaming. It's you know? true. Like if you had made this, say, 10 years ago even, uh, it might have been a PBS documentary and it would have stood alone and they would have used it to raise money during Pledge Week and that might have been the end of it until it went to DVD. But here you can have it. It's almost like a little film festival where you have this new documentary as the centerpiece and then surrounding it are all of these sort of uh, basically uh, supplementary materials. Right. And because it's Netflix, I mean – you know, you can watch it all the way through because it's a little more than three hours, but you can also stop anywhere you want. And if you're really, you know, captivated by uh, uh, the Battle of Midway or the Negro Soldier or, uh, you know, uh, San Pietro, you just go watch that documentary and then come back to, to uh, Five Came Back. That's like the that's like when you're on Wikipedia reading about a particular subject and you click a link and suddenly you go down, down a different rabbit hole. Right. And and just as with Wikipedia or research, I'm hoping that people don't go so far down the rabbit hole that they forget to go back to <laughs> Five Came Back. But but really, it's like it's a pretty ideal circumstance, you know, I was gonna say, on Netflix. Cause, as problems go, that's not a bad one to have. Yeah, no, I'm not I'm not going <laughs> to if anybody gets so interested in this material, you know, uh, that they forget to keep watching. I guess I, I will grudgingly live with that. I mean, seriously, if 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 the if the result of this documentary is that people get steered toward uh, the work of uh, Weiler or Stevens or decide that they want to go exploring, you know, Ford or Houston or Capra, great. I'm really thrilled by that. I'm going to turn into Oprah here for a second and ask you, <laughs> what did you what do you learn about yourself in the years that you have spent living in this other world this other decade i mean like how how has it changed the way you see things how has it changed you oh matt i thought when you said you were going to turn into opera you were going to give me a car <laughs> um uh, well, that's a that's a good question nobody's asked me that um i uh you know i went into this 
at the beginning from a place of aversion because the including from my father the idea of running away from your happy safe family life at 17 and going to put yourself in harm's way and maybe get killed uh over an ocean felt like unimaginably alien and strange to me um that was as a kid and now i mean on a personal level i I'm fascinated by the fact that these men, you know, as so many World War II veterans felt, these men really felt that this experience defined them. Hmm. Uh, you know, it, it, it shaped who they were. It told them who they were in some ways. And uh, I don't, you know, I don't long to have been tested in war. I feel very fortunate that, that I have not been. Um, but... But it has made me think a lot about, you know, what, what kind of experiences define who you are. And, and it's certainly, I mean, the other thing is none of us expected this, this project to get born into the era that we're now in, you know. Right. I, was, I wasn't thinking about Donald Trump when we, I started the book, and none of us were thinking about him when we started this project in 2014. And so... There are certain things in this that that um, loom large for me that aren't necessarily the aspects of the story I thought were going to loom large. You know, stuff about, you know, I, I was moved by the fact that uh, back during World War II, there was a bipartisan consensus um, in Congress and in the country that that the government should not interfere or attempt to interfere in entertainment content. I mean, there was great fear that that uh, the Roosevelt administration was going to go to Hollywood and say, you have to put this and this and this in your movies. And in fact, they did do that to some degree, because while the government didn't have censorship control over the movies, it had the ability to stop the movies from being exported to other countries, which was even then a big revenue stream. So... You know, I think about right now where, you know, we're in an era when the media and journalists and people who act, you know, in the role of journalists the way these filmmakers did are the declared enemy of one political party and, and the assumed champion of another political party. You know, that, 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 that the Republicans have really marked out, uh, journalists as the opposition. Um, it's a, it's a very scary thing, and and so one thing I hope people uh, take from the documentary is that you know the, the the truth and accuracy and independence of reporting and conveying of information, uh, even in this weird context uh, of, of the documentary that that these were propagandists. That, that truth as a value does not have to be uh, partisan. Hmm. Hmm. Wow. That's the most polite way I can put it. <laughs> well, thanks a lot, Mark. Thank you, Matt. This was really fun. And now it's time for this week's Aria, and hey, it's by me. Five Came Back is a gripping story in its own right but it is also fascinating for the ruminations on history and documentary that it may inspire in those who watch it. I'm a big fan of documentary cinema in all of its forms. In fact, I'm enough of a geek about it that I distinguish between particular schools of documentary filmmaking in the way that other movie buffs distinguish between different genres of scripted storytelling, 
debating things like, is Michael Mann's Heat a gangster film that is unusually interested in the relationships between men and women, or is it basically a relationship movie periodically interrupted by gunfire? Or is Star Wars really science fiction, or is it just fantasy and science fiction drag? Well, documentaries have genres too, and they inspire those kinds of discussions. One of the main ways you can tell what genre a documentary belongs to is how much editing there is, how much music, how many other touches that say, in effect, this is not just life you are watching, it is a story, and it is as exciting as any regular movie. You didn't see that kind of attitude in the early direct cinema form, epitomized by filmmakers like Albert and David Maisels and Frederick Wiseman in the 1960s and Barbara Koppel in the 1970s and 80s. The point in their kind of documentary was to observe reality and not interfere too much in the story in the name of shaping it more neatly. Of course, it's hard to really show you stuff in this podcast because it's a podcast. But you can tell a lot from listening, so here's a clip from the Maisels Brothers' 1968 documentary, Salesman, about Bible salesmen traveling door-to-door in the Deep South trying to sell the good book to strangers. The Bible runs as little as $49.95, and we have three plans on it. Cash, COD, and also they have a little Catholic on a plan. Which plan would be the best for you, the A, B, or C? I'm really not interested in wanting yeah. to speak at all with my husband. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You wouldn't want to give him a surprise. Does he have a birthday coming up? Notice how there is no music and you can hear the sound of the room. Notice also that the filmmakers observe conversations unfolding in real time. I just couldn't afford it now. This is what is commonly described as fly-on-the-wall documentary filmmaking. Of course, even filmmakers who observed a doctrine of non-interference interfered a little bit. Simply by choosing what to leave in and what to take out, and what order to put moments in, and when to cut from one shot to another, you are shaping reality to reflect a particular vision. But of course, these things are a matter of degrees. Errol Morris goes in the opposite direction. The director is best known for The Thin Blue Line, which got an innocent accused murderer out of prison, and also for documentaries like Fast, Cheap, and Out of Control, and Fog of War. Morris's films are more like immersive, seductive, philosophical texts. They don't pretend to reflect lived reality. They are exploring other people's arguments and making their own arguments, and they construct a subjective headspace, probably that of the filmmaker, but sometimes that of the subject, Morris's films do this through ominous music and sound effects, suggestive edits, meticulously photographed and framed images, and a distinctive way of shooting people in close-up where they seem to be looking right into the camera. I think the human race needs to think more about killing. How much evil must we do in order to do good? Documentaries like James Marsh's Man on Wire, about the man who walked between the twin towers of the old World Trade Center, go even further. Now we are walking toward a tiny little construction staircase, very narrow. And he's in front, and I'm in the back. I see a nightmare, a policeman. And the policeman has his eyes open, and he's looking at me. Employing elaborate recreations of moments, and staging a major section of the film as if it were a set piece, in a heist movie. 
And then you've got the Ken Burns school, which is dependent on still images, narration in the manner of a novel or college lecture, and interviews with experts. I would guess that the vast majority of traditional documentaries that you see are done in something like the Ken Burns style, although most of them use more lively visuals, stuff where things actually move. Burns is a brilliant filmmaker who seems to have decided to pretend that documentary cinema language stopped developing sometime around 1940. This perfectly suits subjects from the deep past, like the Civil War, but it makes even contemporary projects like his documentaries about baseball and jazz feel like they're looking back to another era. After Cleveland's great pitcher Addy Joss died, his fellow ballplayers staged a benefit game to aid his widow. All the great stars came. Walter Johnson, Smokey Joe Wood, Napoleon Lajouet, and Ty Cobb. The game was a great success. They managed to Five Came Back is a bit of a hybrid of the Ken Burns school and the man-on-wire type of documentary. It feels like an epic story of five men going to war, but it is also a history lesson that provides context. And although it is rich with images taken from World War II documentaries, it is also very dependent on interviews with living filmmakers who know a bit about the period and about filmmaking, of course. Part of the fun for the documentary connoisseur is thinking about the choices being made in Five Came Back and thinking about how the directors that Five Came Back is about also had to make choices, creative choices, personal choices. Artists are always looking back and forward at the same time. Their thought processes are visible on the screen if you know where to look. That's it for this week's show. I will be back next week with Gazelle and Jen. The Vulture TV podcast is produced by Jordan Bell. Laura Mayer is our director of production, and Andy Bowers is our chief content officer. The Vulture TV podcast is part of the Panoply Network. I'm Matt Zoller-Seitz, and you can find me on Twitter at Matt Zoller-Seitz. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.